last few weeks we've covered kind of long chunks of Scripture. Today it will be a little more modest. We're just going to focus on one short passage from Mark chapter 6, um, but I think it says quite a bit. So Mark 6 verses 1 to 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach him, or to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is God's word for his people today. I have a little game that I play when I'm outside of my pastoral role, like when I'm on a trip. And so sometimes I'll do these bike tours like I did in Ohio. There's one called Goba where you bike from town to town uh, throughout the from small town and then spend the night. And the game I play is see how long I can go before revealing that I'm a pastor. Because it's fun, you have a conversation with someone and, you know, you'll be getting on. And, but eventually they'll ask, well, what do you do? And, you know, I don't lie. I'm not, I'm not embarrassed about being a pastor or anything like that. But I notice it sometimes changes the conversation once, you know, they have pastor stamped on my forehead. And so um, what I've noticed and what I'm curious, what I'll be curious to see if, is if that will be still true in New York as it was in Ohio. But here's what I've noticed is that as soon as they find out I'm a pastor, people want to tell me why they no longer go to church. And so often it'll be, they, oh, I still believe, I still love God or do good, but I don't go to church because. And then you'll hear their explanation. For example, on one of these uh, bike tours, we were in a small town and it's, there's uh, 1,500 riders, so there's restaurants are always packed. And so sometimes you end up sharing tables. And I shared a table with a couple. And he's a great guy. We had a good, good conversation, talked about a lot of things. But of course, when he found out I was a pastor, he wanted me to know he used to be on the, the diocesan board, you know, and did all the stuff. And we used to be a very regular at church. But um, the bishop made some decision he disagreed with. And it mainly had to do with supporting ministry in one city but not another. And, and he thought that was wrong. And so he stopped attending. And in fact, now he led the Sunday morning rides in Columbus. And so not only did he not go to church anymore, he kind of led others to not go to church anymore. And um, it's interesting to see what leads people to, to walk away from active 
involvement in church and what people take offense to. In our passage this morning, people take offense to Jesus and what he had to say. And I find that interesting. So let's dig into this, this, this scripture. Um, Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and they have been going from town to town and village proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And he is healing people and doing great ministry. But he comes back to his hometown. Now, it doesn't actually list it in our passage what his hometown is. We're told earlier that it's in Mark, that it's Nazareth. And you may know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is in the south near Jerusalem. Bethlehem is known as the town of David. It's where King David was born. And it's right near the city of the capital, Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus was born. But he was raised up in Galilee in the north. And so that is a small village called Nazareth. Not, not big at all. My brother went to visit there once and he said it's, you know, it's really small. It's up on a hill. There's cliffs you got to be aware of. Like it, it, it's not too impressive. Wouldn't have been a crop growing area. Probably would have been more like a shepherding area. Um, so he's up in Nazareth and he goes back. Now you wonder why did he go back to his hometown? Maybe it was just time for a break, Right? Thanksgiving is almost here. Yeah, you know what? We, we get that, you know, a lot, a lot of people will go visit mom and dad, take a break, go back to your hometown. Unfortunately, it looks like because of COVID, we cannot go back to Ohio very easily. So maybe, maybe we won't get to go to hometowns as much this year. Um, but, so maybe it's time for a break. But there's another possible reason. It could be he's going to reconnect to his family. Earlier in Mark 3, if we didn't, we didn't focus too much on this when we were doing it, but there was a little bit of a tension. Jesus, um, his family, comes to, to claim him because they, it says they believed he was out of his mind with all that he was doing. And Jesus refused to even see them. And so if you need to look that up, Mark, Mark chapter 3, the end of Mark 3, um, because he would not let himself be taken custody of. And so maybe he goes back to kind of re reconnect with his family. Who's his family? Well, there's Mother Mary. Um, it seems to, to, it doesn't say it, but we can presume that Joseph has now has died at this point, that he was certainly a part of the equation, but now he's, he's gone. Um, but there are four brothers listed, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And then it says, plus his sisters. So at least two sisters, if not more. Um, now, every now and then, when I talk about Jesus having brothers and sisters, some folks from a Catholic background say, like, what? Um, because the, the Roman Catholic Church has a certain doctrine, and that is that Mary... It wasn't just that Jesus was born to a virgin, but that Mary remained a virgin her entire life. Therefore, Jesus would not have had brothers and sisters in that thinking. And so what they account for, their view, is that these were older children that Joseph brought into the marriage. In other words, Joseph had been married before. He had these older kids so that Jesus was the younger of, of them. 
Or sometimes they say, well, it says brothers and sisters, but it just means cousins. So that's the Catholic view. The Protestant view um, is that we look in the scriptures and we see nothing like that. And we think it's actually referring to brothers and sisters. And that Joseph and Mary, so Jesus was born of a virgin. Um, it was a special birth. But that after that, Joseph and Mary had children in the normal way. And apparently they had a lot of them. Um, at least six, if not more. So, um, that's the point. And again, we say at some point, Joseph had, had been there. It, he had been a carpenter. And that had passed the trade on to Jesus. But then, because the literal reading of this is that Jesus, they say, isn't this the carpenter? So Joseph would have learned the carpentry trade from, from uh, Joseph. And it wasn't until he had age 30 that Jesus left his hometown and began doing ministry. And so, but Joseph is probably gone at this point. Um, so, when Jesus comes back to his hometown, he's now a big shot, right? He, he's, uh, he's kind of a big deal. Like, people are, crowds go to see him everywhere. And imagine someone, you know, you grew up, went to high school with that was kind of a a normal person that seemed to you in high school uh, or elementary school, and then then they suddenly become worldwide famous, and they come back to visit the hometown. Whoa, you know, like it would be kind of that deal in this small town, and and of course they're going to have him teach in the synagogue, right? You know, he's this famous teacher, and so they have him teach in the synagogue. This is they're they're impressed with his his teaching, but notice the questions. It starts to ask, where did, where did he get these things? You know, he, he, didn't, he didn't train for this while he was living here. Um, what wisdom is given to him? Wow, how did he get so wise? How are such mighty works done by his hands? We've heard of his miracles. And they start to ask these questions. Then, is not this the carpenter? You know, we thought he was going to be a carpenter. Um, the son of Mary. You know, and, and then, you know, we know his brothers and sisters. Aren't they here with us? What, and, and it says, they took offense at him. They, they, they could not wrap their head around the fact that Jesus was more than, than someone they thought they knew. They thought they had him figured out because he grew up there. And, and I think this is evidence that Jesus, when he lived a human life, um, up until the time he started doing the work of ministry, that he didn't go around doing a bunch of miracles because they were astonished that he was now doing mighty works. And so they, they, just, they just couldn't accept him for, for, to be the Messiah, the Son of God. They thought they knew him. And I, I love how they try to pin him down. What do they do? They say, isn't this the carpenter, his occupation? Now, especially men, you, you, you meet someone new, what's the first question you ask? What do you do? Yeah, you're, you want to you know their occupation. What's their job? Um, they also want to know his heritage. Isn't this merit, heritage, Mary's son? Like, maybe you've had this experience, like you'll, you'll go somewhere and, you know, they find out, oh, I'm a reed. Well, are you related to the reeds over, over here? You know, or... And I say, no, no, I'm not related to anyone around here. And they say, what about the reeds over here? You know, like, and they, you always want to know where their family connections are. 
And then lastly, it's by his brothers and sisters. You know, they try to locate him by his family relationships. Oh, is that your brother? That, you know, is that, that's how we tend to know people, right? By their job, by their uh, heritage, or by their family relationships. But Jesus did not fit into that. Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior. He's ichthus, the one who came. And so they took offense at, G at him. How did Jesus respond? He, he has a, a one sentence. And here's what it, a little different version than the ESV. This is, I think it, it captures it. Um, the next slide, please. It says, only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. So that's what Jesus says when, you know, he finds out his, his hometown people are kind of skeptical. So let's, let's think about this. this. This has three parts to it. One is it's a proverbial truth, meaning it's, it's true in general in a lot of different cases. Someone you, you know as a child, um, whether family or neighbor, it is difficult to accept when they become an adult, especially if they move into famous or just a person of authority. Um, you always sort of think of them as the little brat that you saw when they were a kid, and and it would be hard to accept them as some kind of authority in your life. Um, I would imagine it would be hard for, you know, to be a pastor if your parents were in the congregation. You know, they can learn from you, of course, but to be their spiritual authority, that's not quite, that's, that's a different relationship. So I think it's, it's a proverbial truth, first of all. Second, I think this, the, it's showing the family relationships that Jesus had within his family. And it seems that if Jesus came back to reconnect with his family, it may not have worked too well. Does it give you any comfort to know that, that Jesus had strained relationships with his family? That he didn't always get along with his brothers and sisters? That the perfect holy son of God somehow had, had issues between the, the rest of his family? I think this says something. There would be no family favoritism. That Jesus' siblings would not automatically be granted special spiritual status based on their family connection to Jesus. They would have to learn to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord just like every other person. And here's the good news. They did, at least as far as we know. Um, after the resurrection, it says that Jesus appeared to James, who had been the next oldest brother, and that James eventually became a leader in the early church. So he did believe in his, his brother as the one who was resurrected. Um, and in fact, both James and Jude would write letters in, in the, the New Testament. They're, they're kind of the ones we rarely get to because they're way in the back. But uh, you can check them out if you want. So, in other words, his family ended up believing in him eventually. But they had to work that through. No one is included in the kingdom of God because their parents believe. You are invited to follow him. And you have to decide to follow him and trust him with your life. And become his disciple. Just like everyone else. 
The third thing I see in this passage and what Jesus is saying, he says he talks about a prophet without honor. There is a hard truth for servants of God that they must be prepared for criticism and rejection. When Ezekiel was called to be a prophet by God, God told Ezekiel, I'm sending you to a stubborn and hard-headed people. But guess what? I'm going to make your forehead as hard as the flint, as hard as stone, so that you can do the work I'm calling you to amidst that hard-headed people. I will make your forehead as hard as flint. If you serve God, you will eventually come across difficulties, criticism, and even rejection when you're doing the work of, of the Lord. I, there's a psalm, a verse from Psalm 62 I got to cling to. It says, my salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Um, we cannot make the acceptance of crowds the measure of, of your work before God. And Jesus goes on after this. Uh, he teaches his disciples how to handle it. So immediately after this passage, right, he, he sends his disciples out to go teach in the villages. And he says, if you come to a town where they don't listen to you, where they don't want to hear what you have to say, here's what you do. Don't get angry. Don't curse them. Don't rail at them. Don't try to even argue with them. Simply, as you leave town, wipe the dust off your feet. Don't let their rejection cling to you and how you think of yourself. Let it go. Wipe it off and go to the next town where, where the Lord might be at work in a different way. That's the truth that all servants of God have to learn. So those are the three things that I see out of this. But there's another astonishing consequence that takes place because of the skepticism of the hometown people. So in verse 5, it says, He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. So earlier, Mark had always kept saying the crowds were amazed at Jesus because of his teaching. Now Jesus is the one amazed by their inability to, to, to put their faith in him. And the context, remember the context. We, we were talking about this last week. The incredible, effortless power of Jesus. We looked at four miracles. And remember what those four, four were? The first one was he calmed the wind and the waves, a storm. The second one was he cast out the, demon and the, the demons in, in one man. And the third one was he healed a woman that no doctor could, could do anything for. And finally, he brought a young girl back to life. So, so Mark has shown that Jesus has this incredible power. And yet, when there's no faith, it says he could not do any great miracles there, just small healings. This would have been a hard thing for the church to understand. And it's interesting what Matthew does when he writes the story. We, we believe that Mark wrote first. And so he wrote this. Matthew tells the same story, but he phrases it just a little different. Instead of he could not do any miracles, it says he did not do many miracles. 
In other words, it, it's not because Jesus' power is limited that Jesus didn't do. It's that he, in the midst of faith, would not. Um, and what this says is that God is omnipotent and sovereign at the same time. God could do miracles through his son at any point. But God gets to make the decision. And God has chosen to restrict the use of his power. He has chosen not to use his power to convince the skeptics. Now, if I were God, I think that'd be a great way to do it, right? You don't believe in me? Well, let me show you. You know, and you do some, you know, let's part the waters. Just, But we don't see it working that way. Instead, we see God's power at work in those who put their faith in him. You can't go to God as a skeptic and say, I demand that you prove yourself to me by doing some miracle. That's not how it goes. Instead, God says, walk with me and you'll see. Come follow me. Trust me enough, even if it's just a mustard seed of faith, trust me enough to take that first step and you will see amazing things. And I would testify, brothers and sisters, I, I've not seen that dramatic miracle that happens right in front of my eyes that I can prove anything. But I have seen some amazing hidden miracles as I've walked with the Lord. And I think that's what a lot of believers. We see a lot of hidden miracles. Ones that you know God's power was real and active, um, but you don't always see it in the midst of it. You sometimes see it as you think about it, as you walk with him. I'm convinced the Lord still does miracles and acts of power. Um, what I want us to move on to and kind of finish with is this idea of that they took offense at him. What are the reasons people take offense at Jesus today? And I, I want to start with distinguishing between taking offense at Jesus versus taking offense at the church. Because there, there's a dynamic going on. So let's start by acknowledging a few things that are true. Um, one is we need to acknowledge that many people have justifiable reasons to feel hurt by the church. The church has done damage in people's lives. The church, all churches, every congregation at times falls short of what we're called to do and how we're called to treat people. I've encountered a lot of people that feel damaged by the church. And maybe you, maybe you have as well. And there are some church leaders who've hurt people. Um, and the church has struggled on how to deal with that. At times, instead of dealing with what the evil that they've done, they've just moved that person to another area and have, in a sense, enabled and allowed them to continue to abuse people. We have not handled things well um, you may have friends who you've talked to who've walked away from church because of how they were treated. And it's hard to argue against that, isn't it? Um, I think of a friend of mine. I see her Facebook posts, and she's often critical of the evangelical Christians. But in high school, she was 
the evangelical Christian. And um, she's the one, she invited me to her church back in those times. And I don't know what happened in her life. And I, I, I have a few suspicions. But I, I, I'm convinced that something happened, that she was hurt. And now that has become a barrier between her and God. We need to acknowledge that we have done damage to people's lives as, as the church has gone on. But there's another dynamic. The media and the secular culture we live in delights in trumpeting the failures of the church. When a pastor screws up, it is front page news. When a televangelist bilks people out of more money and then uses it to buy a jet, it gets publicized, right? They love to highlight our failures, especially the scandals that go on. Those That sells papers. And I think there are a lot of people out there who have a, a much worse view of Christianity and the church than is warranted because if that's all you get from culture. I remember a point when I was watching movies as a, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it, it seemed like if, if you encountered a priest or a pastor in a, uh, in a movie, it would turn out that they were secretly the bad guy, right? Like, it, it just seemed like every time, it, oh, oh yeah, of course, watch out, it'll turn out that way. I think they don't do that as much as they used to, but um, it did seem like that for a while. And so, people a lot of times have been influenced by that picture, what do we do about it? Well, we can complain about it, but that doesn't work. Um, instead, I think we have to do the hard work of offering a better picture of Jesus. Because the church does amazing things. I think one of the privileges I have as a pastor is seeing all the little ways in which you love one another. All the ways you care for people. All the ways the church does good things. I know hundreds and hundreds of people who love Jesus and are just trying to do good. And they do a lot of unsung things. In fact, we're told not to trumpet our own good deeds, right? And so there's a lot of things we do that will never be noticed by the world. we got to keep doing them. Because that's the hard work of changing the picture that people have of Jesus. Let them say what they will. We can prove it. Prove it otherwise by our lives. The third thing to, to know on this is that sometimes people aim their complaints and rhetoric at the failings of the church, but in reality the issue is Jesus. They use the, the hypocrisy of the church or whatever, the, the crusades, as their reason to, to turn away, but really it's about them and, 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 and Jesus. I think of that guy that told me he, he quit the church because of a financial decision the bishop made. And I thought about, would I really let something like that keep me? If I really wanted to worship Jesus, would I really let some person keep me from, from coming and worshiping my Lord and Savior? That says something about his heart for the Lord in the first place. And I suspect there's people that use the failings of the church to justify their own distancing from God. All right, what are the three reasons? I'm going to offer three reasons. I know there are more. I think these are the big three that people take offense at Jesus today. And I would love to hear back if you think I'm missing one or which one of these you think is probably the, the biggest one. 
Um, one is people take offense at Jesus because they're off offended by the claims of authority by Jesus over their life. When we declare Jesus as Lord, that means we're saying he has the right to tell us what to do. That he knows better about what we need to do in life than we know ourselves. Jesus has the authority. If he is Lord, he has the authority to speak into our life. And I think some people don't like that. They want to decide for themselves what they want to do. They like, they like Jesus when he talks about forgiveness or, or love, love. You know, that, that's all good. But when he starts, you know, getting involved in areas that, you know, is personal. Oh, oh wait, wait a second. You can't tell me what to do there. That's when they walk away. That's when they take offense. The second reason I think people take offense at Jesus is they are offended that Jesus has not been updated for, for the times. Right? They, they, they want the teachings of Jesus to kind of go along with the flow of society. You know, oh, we know so much better than they did 2,000 years ago about life and everything. And, you know, well, Jesus is fine on a certain areas, but, but we want his teaching to be updated. We want it to, to um, fit the mood of our culture. And, and they take offense that Jesus' word is unchanging, that he speaks the truth on, on certain areas, and especially... Right now, it's, it's on his directions about sex. And that sex was designed between a man and a woman who are married to each other. The world wants an updated Jesus. Now, we do have to remember that the church has misapplied the Bible at times. Um, preachers in the South use the Bible to justify slavery. And so I think... We, we have to keep in mind as we teach the scriptures, we have to hold on to a, an aspect of humility. But nevertheless, we are called to clearly teach what the Bible clearly teaches. We do not update this to fit in with the world and what it wants us to say. We need to be winsome and explain well the reasoning behind it and how it makes more sense. But ultimately, we have to be prepared for people to take offense when we stand on the rock of, our, of, of his word. Third reason that people take offense at Jesus, and I, I think this might even be the, the, the biggest reason. They are offended by the exclusivity of Christ. We teach that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Um, that salvation is in Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way that we can get in a right relationship with God. And that goes against the grain of the world that wants to say, no, you can get to God by any path you choose. And all religions will lead you to the same place. We say, no, no religion will get you there. Only the Son of God who came into the world, he is the only one who can get us back into the right relationship with God and into the eternal life that God desires to give us. Acts 4.12, it says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, God is not looking to keep anyone out. He is an open and generous God. In Revelation 4.1, it declares, The door to heaven is open, but there's still only one door. And that door is Jesus Christ. And you have to, to, 
to deal with him, to respond to him. But if you do, people of every stripe, background, and all that can come in and interact, and Jesus will invite you and walk you into the presence of the eternal God and Father and walk you into eternal life. That is a doctrine that the world struggles with. Maybe you struggle with it. I mean, is it really, is it really the only way? Let me offer one reason, the reason that has convinced me. If there were another way to save people that did not involve Jesus dying on a cross, do you think the Father would have turned his back on Jesus and gave his one and only Son over to die such a death? If there were another way he could have saved us? Jesus is the only one who gave his life for people. And so he's the only one that can save us into eternity. Jesus is the Messiah. He has the authority to speak over our life. Jesus is the Son of God. He teaches the truth about God. Um, he brings light into the world. And Jesus is the Savior. The salvation is found in no other name. On this we teach and we stand as his people and his followers. I have two questions to close. Have you, what reasons have you heard people saying that they took offense at the faith? Have you encountered people? And, and when you ask, and I encourage you to ask and listen before you argue. Let them speak their peace. You cannot argue someone into the kingdom of God. You cannot argue them out of their views. But if you listen and give them a chance to, to know you're listening, they might be willing then to listen to what you have to say. But what reasons have you heard? People saying they took offense at Jesus. And then secondly, have you ever took offense at something in the Word? And how did you work that out? If you haven't, have you read the Word enough? Because I think I think if we read this enough, he's going to start to hit here. And I guarantee you, if you're taking it seriously, at some point you're going to get offended. And you're going to have to talk to God about the blindness that you have. So when, did, when were you offended by something in the Word and you had to go to your Father and work it out and understand it better? Let me close in prayer. Father, I thank you that the door to heaven is open. And that you're not looking for any reason to shut people out. But through your son, you've opened the way to life everlasting. A life that, that matters. A life that connects with the, the creator God. And Father, I thank you that, that we can have the privilege of, of sharing that good news. May you prepare us for different responses. But Lord, we pray that you are at work leading people to your son Jesus. And that we may play some small part. In, in seeing that happen. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen.